welcome to the Mile 99 interview series with your hosts, Greg Larkin, Mike Turner, and Jessica Harris. Enjoy this episode, and we'll hope to see you on the trails soon. Hi, this is Mike Turner, one of your hosts of the Mile 99 interview series. Today, I want to talk about everyone's favorite topic. Let's be honest. It's not your family. It's not your friends. It's your gear, right? Gear is always exciting to me when it's brand new right out of the box. But the real question is, do you still love that same gear after the first 99 miles? The first 99 gear review explores these fading and sometimes exploding love affairs with honest trail-tested miles. We explore how products hold up under real-life conditions. Do they live up to their advertising and their hype? It's not how they hold up for a three-mile spring fun run. It's how are they really doing? How are they really holding up after a long, hard summer in the North Fork Canyon or a bitter and harsh winter up in the Tahoe Rim? This is where a product either shines or reveals its true inherent flaws. Our money is hard to come by, and none of us either have the extra time nor the extra money to waste on products that just let us down. On the other hand, we should all support products and companies that incorporate quality designs and root out their own design flaws. We all need products that we can count on. On the first 99 gear review, we usually talk about things that are help us out as runners that are connected to us. Our shoes, our skis, hiking poles, clothing, stuff like that. But today we're looking at a different twist on what makes a successful runner. And we're going to be looking at all of the gear that it takes and the planning and the volunteers that it takes to put on a successful aid station at the Western States Endurance Run. We couldn't think of anybody better to talk to than Doug White to join us and kind of go over all the details of planning and the gear, the people, just all the details. So, uh, Doug, hello and welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. And we got Jessica Harris here as well. Hey, Jessica, how are you? I'm doing good. Good to see everyone on this Monday. And Jessica, you and you and Doug go way back. You guys are old school. Ew. How long have we been friends, Doug? Like five years? Uh, yeah, I, 2017. I, I probably met you in 2016. It's either 16 or 17. Yeah. But yeah, me and Doug, we're, I consider him one of my best friends. Nice. One of my best helpers. <laughs> <laughs> and, more of a, and, and even more of a friend. So there. And we got Greg Larkin, our co-host from the, from the interview series. How's it going, Greg? All right. How are you all doing? Doing good. We're doing good. Just as the weather has finally changed a little bit. I have family in Texas, friends and family, and I've been calling them and making sure everyone's okay. But it's been it's been pretty hard back there. Yeah, my sister just posted some pictures today. A week ago, they were under six inches of snow, and today, bare ground. So pretty strange. Man, I, when I was growing up, the weather forecaster it was always he always said, "If you don't like the weather in Texas, wait five minutes." Today on the show, we got Doug, and before we get into the aid station, I kind of wanted to find out a little bit more about Doug. Doug has been around this area for a long time. Everybody knows Doug. There's a long history of supporting racers and runners, but there's a lot There's a lot more to Doug. So Doug, uh, maybe just quickly kind of talk about your career history. I know you were in the military. 
you retired, now you're going back to work. So what what is your just quick career history? And give you the thumbnail speech. I make the joke that I started off as a child and uh, I went to school, uh, went to UC Davis to be a chemist. I was gonna be a pharmaceutical research chemist uh, specializing in anti-neoplastics, uh, cancer drugs. And then in 1979, the Ayatollah Khomeini took 52 American hostages and that didn't sit well with me. So um, I was in a PhD program at US, UC Davis. And since every one of my forefathers, literally back to the Civil War, I was a military officer, I joined the Navy. And I thought I was going to do, uh, you know, the, the typical four-year commitment. So I'd feel proud of myself that I did what I was supposed to be doing, got in and loved it. Stayed on for 25 years and got a really special deal in the Navy. I didn't do a normal Navy job. I'm a, um, they called my type of uh, designator an engineering duty officer. I'm a chemist. I, I was a chemist for the Navy and they put me in technical program management. So I mostly did program management and leadership for 25 years in the Navy, then uh, retired from the Navy and went right to work as an exec in the aerospace and defense industry where I was vice president for research and development at the world's largest rocket motor making factory, then left there to go back to my home program. I spent most of my life on one program and I worked in the Navy strategic systems programs for Lockheed Martin for another five years and then retired and moved over. Uh, well, thank you for your service. That's uh, thank you very much. It's amazing. That's, I mean, uh, what a long career you, you get into something some public public thing happens and, and and you just decide to stand up and then you just love it. And so it's pretty amazing that you stayed, stayed there for so long. I was very fortunate and I really, really enjoyed my job. It was, you know, I did nuclear weapons, so it was kind of a burnout thing. Uh, so I was able to retire early, fortunately. You can only take that for so long. Yeah, I imagine. And uh, and then you're you actually are teaching. You're retired, but you're you're doing on the side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just picked up a job uh, teaching chemistry at Sierra College, and I am loving it. I really back am. to the very basics, like like Chem One A and One B. I do. I'm doing actually Chem A. It's their high school version of chemistry for people who came out of high school or are returning students who don't have a, a very strong background. It's a non-transferable course, but I actually asked for it. Because, you know, I'd been a, a tutor at the college. I took some college and I, I tutored math. Um, I tutor all levels of math. It's easy to tutor, tutor calculus. You just point people in the right direction. It's very difficult to teach people, uh, tutor ones who are, you know, have a self-perceived weakness. And so those are the students I really uh, love to help. And, and I can. And I find myself, uh, I think, fairly capable in working with those who just believe they can't do math. And so that's where I am, and it's making a difference. I think my students are actually liking it. Wow, that's great. I remember my chemistry days. I took it at Sac State, and it comes down to the professor. The professor can inspire you and make you understand chemistry and, and all of its glory and all of the things that it goes into. And it's not just learning the formulas and the reactions, but explaining. I was like when they explained chemistry, modern chemistry back to me. Did you know that this is like this because of this? That was always amazing to understand life, how life worked through that angle, you know? Yeah. So you're now you're retired, but you're assigning your organizational skills in the military. And that's probably why you're you you run a good aid station and an organization there. But before we get into that, you're also a runner, you're an athlete, you run many great races. 
did you run in when you were in high school or was it something? No, no, I, I would, I would admit that I totally suck as a runner uh, for most of my life. Uh, first time I really ran was when I had to run for the Navy PFT physical fitness test. I was a swimmer and I was a good swimmer. Uh, I've actually done pretty well in swimming. I can't run anymore. It's been 15 years since I've been unable to run. I've got a fair number of physical problems. I did a lot of uh, fun ultra running. I started ultra running in uh, 1996 after I graduated from triathlon. I kind of got a bad, I got a sour attitude on triathlon because they were so, I started off with the early guys doing triathlon. By the way, that was a Navy invented sport. It's true. A Navy lieutenant commander in, uh, in Hawaii did the first, uh, you know, gathered up a few of his buddies and they said, so you want to be tough? Let's go do the, you know, the swim and the bike and the run. And, uh, you know, did the full length, uh, Ironman. And so I started doing, uh, triathlons in the eighties when it was a fledgling sport. And I really enjoyed it. Did a lot of them. I was, I was, again, I was a very good swimmer and swimmers don't do well. I would, I would come out number one out of the water and then get my, you know, what kicked by those who could run and ride a bike. Uh, but I enjoyed it a lot. Um, did almost a hundred triathlons. Wow. And uh, graduated. They went into, they got the, there was this federation called TriFed, Triathlon Federation in USA, and they wanted to get into the Olympics. And that was their sole purpose. It became so obsessed with rules that, you know, I kind of started to reject it because, you know, different people were competing with each other and basically trying to get them disqualified because it was so competitive. And I thought, well, that's not very fun. So I quit triathlon and went into rock climbing and mountaineering and did that for a while. And then just somewhere along the line, uh, discovered. Um, actually I was living in Utah and I discovered, uh, ultra running because somebody wanted me to pace for them at Wasatch, Wasatch 100. Once I did that, I was hooked. I moved to California in late 96, started working at last chance aid station. So I worked there for four years, last chance with the Stevens Creek Striders. I was the, uh, club president for Stevens Creek Striders in, uh, uh, the Bay area. And so I worked there for four years and then I ran it myself. I ran States in 2001 and I've been at Dusty Corners ever since. Wow. I was curious about where you got into Western States. So is that still a group? The, the Stevens Creek Striders? Are they still oh, yes. around? They, they still run uh, Last Chance. Good friends of mine. Um, they stay with us every year. You know, we know, I know the aid station captains are my dear friends, uh, Peggy and Lena. And so they usually will come and stay here. We put them up, you know, for the weekend uh, and we still run it together. Nice. And it's a, I think the, the triathlons, the thing, I think if if you're a good swimmer, you're probably pretty good because you can learn to ride a bike. You can learn to run and, and, but I think learning to swim, I'm not a swimmer, but learning to swim will be the hardest part. If you can't swim strong. Yeah, it's true. That's probably the most dangerous part. The other things you can just learn, I suppose. Well, yeah, it is hard to learn swimming to be proficient. But here's the thing, that if you can at least do it and you can cycle well, the advantage, you know, is very strong for the cyclist and about second place for the run. It's a matter of time, Mm. time in the saddle for each of those events. And it's very well dominated by cycling. So a super good cyclist doesn't even have to be able to, you know, make a chill doing this swim, get out and go whoop up on people. Uh, I see. So... There you go, Greg. 
maybe it's it's suited. Greg is a Greg Greg comes from a long 30 years of bike racing. So uh, athlete. Greg, have you ever thought about doing a triathlon or something? Oh man, yeah. The swimming would be tough for me. I mean, I'd be out there <laughs> with the dog paddle and all that, side stroke, you know, those are about my that's my uh my arsenal. <laughs> you know, the, the fun part I thought about triathlon, I mean, I come I'm a Navy guy and you know, we took the swimming stuff seriously. Uh, not that most Navy people do, but it, if you're in the front of the pack of uh, swimming in a triathlon, it's a literal slugfest. We, we we had fist fights every single race. The league swimmers all wanted that same cubic yard of water. And that was just part of the sport. <laughs> it's kind of stupid, but it was part of the sport. Like piranhas out there in the water. And Jessica, I know you had a long history of track and and in college and high school, were you ever a swimmer? Your kids are swimmers. Are you a swimmer? Absolutely not. Um, I actually got excused in high school from swimming because they're like, we just can't do anything with you. Uh, <laughs> um, I can't tread water. I've had over a dozen people try to teach me how to float. It's just not in my wheelhouse. I tried to ride my daughter's bike the other day, and that's not my thing either. So you know what? Um, I could probably do an aid station for a triathlon really well, but not participate. <laughs> right. So I'm with you there on the swimming. Uh, yeah, I did. I did get diving certified when I, in my twenties, but yeah, I I just don't like to be. I, I don't like to be cold. I could never cold water. <laughs> to me, that's just the worst. I wouldn't have survived the military, at least not if it had water. Let's get into the the details here. So you. You said you were your first, you got first uh, part of last chance. Those are your friends, and you kind of worked there for four years. Mm -hmm. What years were those? Six, seven, eight, and nine. 96, seven, eight, and nine. Actually, seven, eight, nine, zero. That's that's correct. Because I moved here in 96. I moved to California. uh, Moved to California, lived in the Bay Area, was working in the Navy program office. I was the CEO of the Navy program office. Started with the Stevens Creek Striders in 1997. So four years, 97, 98, 99, and 2000. And I ran it in 2001. And then so did you take over Desi Corners in 2002? No, actually, I didn't. My mother-in-law, stepmom, excuse me, stepmom, Barbara Sir White, you know, she's the person who has done the Tevis ride more than anybody. Wow. She's, gosh, I can't even remember how many. It's in the mid-30s or so. Uh, a lot of silver buckles. But she and my dad, I mean, the way I, this was really kind of a, a neat story. My dad had cancer. And so that's not the neat part of the story. That's the bad part of the story. But he did have cancer in the year 1998. And we thought he was a goner, and, uh, but he survived and he's doing, he's still alive today. Uh, 89 years old. He told me when he survived cancer that he felt like he survived because he had the will to see me run Western states. No pressure there. (laughs) So I quickly got out and qualified for Western states, got in and and he and my uh, stepmom, Barbara, took on the aid station. It was fortuitously open in that year. I can't remember. I know Craig Thornley worked there just before we we had that. So that was his aid station that he worked at. 
And I can't remember which group it was uh, that it actually held it, but but our family got it. And it's in the aid station is actually in the name, the White Family. I took over as the aid station captain in 2011, I believe. Because wow. I was still active duty Navy for a while and I was still on the job. So I, I did do it while I was on the job working for Lockheed for a few years. Uh, but then, so I've had it for, you know, this would be my 10th year. Well, good, good that your father-in-law, that was a pretty amazing. My father, yeah, my dad, dad, he lived and he, he's an amazing guy. I look at him and I, I, you know, I always sort of worry whatever happens to him or whatever is happening to him happens to me 25 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely got to, that's where you're watch stuff. But then it sounds like he's a strong man. So that's really great to know that. Yeah. He has, you know, he can, he can dig deep and get through it. That's great. Yep. Uh, so your, so your, your family took it over or you, and you, you started in 11 and, uh, she said before that maybe Craig was involved, but we weren't sure who. When you were the days were when you're at last chance, you recall who was uh, who was running Dusty Corners at that point. I thought, and I, and I got to be careful here because I don't know the answer, but I thought it was the Palo Alto Running Club or some people that were at least from the Palo Alto Running Club because I knew a couple of people who were on it. Uh, and I used to run with the Palo Alto Running Club also, as you know, uh, as, as well as the Stevens Creek Striders. Mm-hmm. So I'm really not sure. Craig would know. Yeah. Craig would know who had it up until the point of 2001. And 2001 is when the White family took over. Huh. And then that, and that's pretty interesting. So how many years, I wonder, on average, does somebody, is somebody a captain? Because that's a lot of time. And I thank you for all, all, the, all the time involved. How many years is someone typically a captain of like one of these big race? I, you know, I thought about that question because I saw it in your uh, list of things we might talk about. And uh, my conclusion is that there really isn't. Of course, they're highly coveted. There are some people who have been around for over 30 years. There are some aid station captains that have been around for a very long time. And, you know, a group like the Stevens Creek Striders has and, you know, they're listed as the running club that, you know, and they'll be their captainship tends to change, you know, from time to time. But the Stevens Creek Striders have had that aid station for, gosh, a really long time. It's over. I'm going to guess it's over 30 years. You, you know, you look in the program and it will tell you. But lately, uh, you know, you do see new aid station captains coming in. We have, of course, gone from 25 aid stations to essentially 20. That's the way I think about it. And uh, I think there's a tendency to hang on to those um, aid stations because it's Western states. I don't think that happens for, you know, most other races quite the same as it does for Western states. But people, you know, tend to come in and they really feel proud to be involved in an organization I mean, who wouldn't be proud to work for Western States? It's an amazing, uh, it's the greatest event of its kind in the world. It, yeah, it's really great to me to be a, be a part of it. And becoming more popular, obviously, as the decades go on, even 10 years ago, I mean, now, between now and 2010, 2012, it's, it's grown exponentially. And so the, the spots in Western States are becoming, instead of one in 1,000, it's one in 60,000, you know? So your odds, but an eight station retains its, it's uh, it's it's members and it's people and it's so it's a it's you know I mean I think at the last lottery Craig said the best way to get in 
states as a local is to, is to volunteer. And that's our local advantage. Yes. Is, to, is, is participate. And that's probably uh, one of the main reasons that we, uh, that Western States Endurance Run Foundation organization keeps that uh, A station designated runner is it is a good way for a local person to get in. When I, you know, in 2001, I had a 30% chance at the lottery. And that's pretty reasonable. Uh, not a bad, not a bad deal at all. So I got in and was fine. Um, and in the first, gosh, it didn't start getting crazy until about 2010-ish. And then it really just went exponential. Um, you know, we we used to give away our our aid station designated runner to like the same three people for 10 years. Because those are the only ones who were running it that came from Dusty Corners. And so I, you know, gave it to one person three times and another person twice. But since, you know, around the 10 time frame, it's just exploded and it's hard yeah. to keep up. Yeah, I bet. As, a, as the aid stations change hands or change families, how, how have you seen maybe it change, maybe based on one, just the decades versus like changing families and changing hands. Has it changed a lot? Just the way it runs and is how it's organized? Yes, I think it has. It's changed significantly since uh, I first started doing this. Now I want to apply that and I'm going to be careful how I say it. For uh, an age station like Last Chance, not much has changed. And, and so there's two kinds of aid stations that I would I would point out. There's aid stations that have crew and aid stations that don't have crew. And that is the single biggest difference by far in terms of what you have to produce when you're on the ground the day of the race. And, you know, the Stevens Creek Striders, you know, I would say their aid station net today looks exactly like it did back in the days that I was there with one exception. There's probably a few more people. And, you know, they've added some nice little accoutrements kind of things that, that are good. The aid stations that are in contact with crew have really evolved. And they've evolved to be, you know, I kind of think of them as they're like big parties because, you know, to take a look at a place like, you know, Dusty Corners, Duncan Canyon, these are remote aid stations. We can have 300 crew there at any given time, sometimes more. So there's a huge mass of people. And, you know, if you take 300 people and you put them out in a hot day and, you know, dusty corners, it ain't no shade. <laughs> it's, it's hard to get into. Um, you know, it's a recipe for, you know, all kinds of things to not go right. So we focus a huge amount on crew and the rules have changed. So anywhere where you have to get a lot of cars in, you know, it used to be nobody really cared, you know, about how the cars were parked. I mean, they cared, obviously, so I'm exaggerating a little bit. But now the rules are pretty strict. We get inspected by the Forest Service for all sorts of things every year. And the Forest Service goes to generally every aid station, but the things to be inspected for are much less, much less on a place that doesn't have crew. So, you know, we get the porta potties inspected, you know, they're checking us out for is it the food service look clean? Uh, are the cars parked properly? And that's one of my biggest headaches is parking. Uh, parking in dusty corners is kind of a trick. So I have a, a separate uh, parking crew that takes care of that. And I think we do a really nice job, but that's an evolution. You know, the first few years, 
we were kind of getting in trouble from the Forest Service. And so I got told by, this was back when Greg Soderlund was the uh, still the uh, race director, say, hey, you got to do a better job at parking them cars. <laughs> Roger that. Um, and, and, you know, I did it myself. I parked the cars myself for the family. And so that's why I know a lot about parking. But, you know, it kind of just it got progressively more complicated. And it is largely because of the number of people. We were doing aid station with 10, 12 people. You know, uh, I'm not the only aid station that's running out there with 50 people and 300 uh, crew members. So 50 volunteers, 300 crew, 300 plus. I mean, figure it. Every crew member, every runner has a crew and every crew has two people at least. You don't see very many that only have one. So that's a lot of cars coming into these remote aid stations. Back in the day, the race actually discouraged crew from going to Duncan and Dusty. I mean, when I did it, they discouraged, and I didn't have any crew there. I didn't send any crew there because that was discouraged. Mm-hmm. So my crew was just on the north side of the river. And but that that changed. And, you know, the, the race became, you know, very much about, you know, also providing a very nice experience for crew. And so we've done, I think, extremely well with it, but it has very much changed the nature of what happens on the ground for those stations that have crew. It's a big party. Yeah, it's, am- it's amazing. I know that the Forest Service and along with the Forest Service, private property owners that own these large parcels are more and more getting frustrated with just the amount of people out in the woods on property they own or going through the property and people park worse than they ever parked before and they don't think about people getting out or emergency services getting in or a forest fire coming through and there's a lot of things that that yeah people that are just thinking about their runner they're in a hurry and whoever plans you never plan enough time to get out there you're always pushing the clock if you're screwing somebody you never have enough time. So you're out there like, it's so far. And you're behind, you park the car, you jump out. And yeah, it's uh, definitely, I can see the challenge. Well, let me let me give you a little, uh, my two cents worth on that one here, just because I have a lot of experience with that. When people arrive at Dusty Corners, they're always early. They think they're late. But it's a long way from Duncan Canyon to Dusty Corners. And so I get so many people, crew members who are very stressed. They're so worried they've missed their runner. And I usually tell them, you know, go find a spot of shade if you can and wait a while and, and it's all going to be fine. Uh, in Western states, they're so spread out that I think it's not too hard for crew to ever catch up. I've never seen uh, a, a crew that was late for their runner. Yeah, you're like, usually just tell them, you have plenty of time. Now go park your car right. Exactly. Well, I make them park it right. They don't have any problems with that because I have six people on on parking and I actually have a person there showing them more how to park their car. They don't get to do that alone. Nobody gets to park their car alone at Dusty Corners. And this year, obviously, we, we interviewed you know, last week uh, the team, Western States, everybody. And, and you know, there, there may be changes this year. And, and when there's a change, sometimes things don't go back. So, so we never know the future of, of anything, but if there could be a change for COVID reasons this year, there could be no crew or limit crew to one, or, I mean, you, you never know. They could, if Dusty Corners goes down to no crew, it may never come back. Like you never really know what's going to happen. Yeah, I kind of doubt that will happen just based on the way I hear uh, management talking. 
I, I tend to believe that the, the Western States management has very, very high value with the crew experience. And, and uh, you know, we've, I think, given them a pretty good experience and that's very popular. So I, you know, my prediction would be that it probably won't go away. We've talked a lot about, you know, what do we do with this 300 people in the, in the middle of nowhere in a, uh, a COVID year? And there's not been a decision on that yet. And so it's interesting. It could be a change. Can't wait to see myself. Yeah, what to see. Oh, we'll get back with Craig and the team, I'm sure, before, I don't know, Greg, when we get back to those guys before the race and get another update, huh? Yeah, I think it'd be good just to get a final final read on things from them. They seem to enjoy uh, connecting directly with everybody. Yeah. I think they're going to make their decision in March. Yeah, good plan. And we'll have, we'll have to have an interview mid-late March. Other things I want to talk about before we get into the aid station details, because I, I do like lists. I like to bullets and make lists of things. And so I, I put together like a what I thought would be fun to talk about. But before we get into that, any memorable years, events at your aid station that things are just like you just funny things that happen? Or- they're all pretty much the same. Uh, and they're all fun. We have such a wonderful time out there. People really enjoy it. I especially like seeing the people who I only see once a year. Dusty Corners is unique in that it's not a running club. Um, and so it's an at-large aid station and we have people that from all walks of life literally have non-runners you know just want to do it and uh, I love seeing them every year but the one year that sticks out in my mind though is the year it snowed that day it was cold because normally we're burning up Dusty Corners like I said really didn't have any shade it was freezing cold we had runners that we had to treat for hypothermia by sticking them in a car so that's but the only year that really stands out as being something particularly different. They're all fun. They're all good years. Uh, but that was weird. You know, if you were to say, well, you have the hottest year in the world, yes, they're all hot as far as I'm concerned. And so that doesn't seem to be memorable. There was the fire year in 2008 where we couldn't do it. Uh, that was weird. And my sister had just gotten married and the fire started on her wedding day. Wow. So I blame her for it. And uh, we couldn't run that year because the whole darn place was on fire. So yeah. that year and the snow year, um, those were different. Yeah, that was a rough fire. There's still evidence. I mean, the North Fork is still, there's still so much evidence out there of the fires. It's still, of course, they come back, but it takes, takes decades before it's to- yeah, It takes a long time. Hey, everybody, this is Greg Larkin, one of the co-hosts of the Mile 99 Interview Podcast. Just want to take a minute here to give a shout out to Krista Cavender. We just worked with her. Uh, She's a graphic design artist, and she redid our logo for us. We're really excited about it. We've put it out on all of our social media here as of uh, late January, and uh, we highly recommend her services. If you're looking for graphic design work, logo design for your business, something like that, uh, please give her a shout. Her Instagram is Krista with a K, Cavender, and you can also find her online at kcavenderdesign.com. Highly recommended. She does great work, really clean, beautiful graphics. I think you'll be really pleased. Uh, I know we were. So as always, take care and we'll see you on the trails.
so let's get into the planning part of an aid station. Now, this is what I, I, I find interesting. Maybe talk about how many people does it take to, for the planning stages and then race day and then post-race and kind of just kind of go over what it takes staff-wise. For planning stages, I have in the past pretty much done it myself. Jessica has helped me greatly in recent years. So I at least have some other person, but I've been used to doing it. And I would, I would say that most aid station captains pretty much are on their own. For a running club, it's a bit easier. You have a much more captive audience. You know, it, planning really, I mean, I know how to do the job and running an aid station is not a very difficult job. That, that, that's certainly true. But, you know, the planning is really getting people to commit to being a volunteer. And to me, that's super important. You know, it, and I have a rule. Anybody ever flakes on me, they never get invited back. And that's just the way. <laughs> Anybody flakes on me, they're never invited back. Uh, but I've only had that happen once. In all my time, I've only had one person do that. And I never invited that person back. And, you know, no harm done. That's okay. But so I need to get people to commit. I build a roster. I track it. Um, I communicate a lot. And, and I like doing that. I like communicating with my people. And I consider running an aid station just a furtherment of my leadership part of my life. I consider it all about leadership. In fact, for me personally, it is more about the opportunity to lead people doing something they like to do than it is about the race. I'm, I'm not a runner anymore. I love it. I love the sport. But, you know, the guys at the very back of the pack inspire me just as much as the ones who are, you know, winning. So, you know, for me, it's really about the experience of leading a team to do something really magnificent. And that means a great deal to me. And, you know, again, it's my ability to keep doing a, having a little bit of a leadership gig, even if it's something completely inconsequential. You know, it's not like running a nuclear weapons facility, which I did. Um, you know, we were out here having fun, but the beauty of it is, is that everybody wants to be there for the same reason. Yeah. And with that, that desire to be a part of it, people are, are so automatically aligned to begin with that it's no work for the leader. It just, everything just unfolds when you have, you know, a couple of thousand people who have, you know, a couple of thousand different lives and they're there because that's what they need to do to make a paycheck. Uh, you get a lot of different behaviors and the leader has to deal with all those different behaviors, which you don't have to do in a situation like this. So planning back to answer your question really doesn't take much in the early stages. The big deal is logistics. I need to get people to commit. Getting people with trucks or large vans that can move gear because there's a lot of gear. I mean, it isn't like a little aid station on a, 50k race where you can I can pack up an aid station I've done it many times I've probably done an aid station out of my Toyota 4Runner as an aid station captain more times than I'd like to think about but you can't do that for a big operation like Western States it's too much gear too much stuff 1500 pounds of ice and I'm sure you're going to go through that but it you know I need two trucks just for ice now we got a you know a good deal now we're getting an ice trailer out there and that's a, that was a big change for us but all of the, you know, gear I've got to get out there usually took me about five to six pickup trucks. Wow. And 
all over several days and you went out there in advance or you kind of just nope. on, on the day? No, that's when I go into a military operation mode. I have it all staged at my place in Auburn and I have the trucks come by at designated times to pick stuff up. So the day before, the Friday before the race, a pretty darn busy day. And I actually have my thoughts about how I'm going to change how I do that this year because it's generally a pretty painful three days for me. I love the day of the race, but it's a lot of darn work for me as an individual. And I've got some ideas of what I can do to change that up and make my life a little bit easier. And are, are people pulling trailers out there? Is this ice truck a trailer, like a refrigerated trailer? If in, in uh, 2019 was the first year we had a trailer and that was huge. It was really good. And, you know, somebody, I have to get somebody with a truck that can haul. It's a big trailer. And then the water can come in on a trailer or in the back of a pickup truck. You can take in water either in carboys, you know, the, the five gallon uh, uh, jugs or a large 120 to 150 gallon uh, container. But then, of course, there's all the food. I mean, there's just so much stuff. I've got, you know, a two-page list of all the stuff that goes to Dusty Corners. It's a lot. It's really a lot. Jessica can tell you. She's seen it. Well, yeah. So um, Nick drove the ice trailer with Paulo's big diesel truck. And as much as it's nice, we don't have to deal with getting a massive amount of coolers to pack all this ice in and then drive it down because we have this ice trailer but now we need a generator and we need to make sure we have the right kind of truck. And that truck couldn't could only do the trailer because the road getting to dusty corners is not the easiest one to get down. So it's like you swap, you go, okay, we swapped out the ice situation for another ice situation, which is, it's so nice to have the ice just there and hook a generator in there. We don't have to worry about it coming down the day of, but it is just definitely swapping one logistical thing for another <laughs> it is and now that we know that because you know it, it was hard uh, it was tough. we got to you know uh my thoughts on that are you know i'm gonna get i need to i need it all comes down to people solutions well, for everything are, are always people and you just need to get the person with the right truck and you know and and deal with that too because the worst thing ever happened to us is if you know one of those large things didn't show up Yikes. Yeah. And I, I was just stressed. And so I wanted the water and ice with me. I was like, Doug, I'm sleeping there the night before I'm going to sleep next to the ice trailer. So I know it's there in the morning. I'm not going to, I like had nightmares that I woke up in the middle of the night, opened the ice trailer and it was all liquid. <laughs> yeah. But I think if Doug didn't have me, it might be easier. Cause I was like, I need the water and ice there with me tucked in at night. <laughs> the night before because I was like we could run an aid station with not um, like if the food didn't arrive but people need water and ice so that was my thing water and ice are definitely the highest priorities water number one ice number two food number three yep so there's a well out there is that right or is that not a well out there no no there used to be a well at actually there was a spring at last chance there is, you know, I don't know. There's nothing, there's no water near Dusty Corners. I guarantee you that. It's a ridgetop. Yeah. So there ain't no water there. Uh, if you go down towards the old town, Last Chance, where there's a town there, there's actually a spring. And uh, until two years ago, Last Chance actually got their water from that spring. Oh. So they had a, you know, a, a little bit simpler task. They can get extra water out of the spring. Can't do it anymore. It's not potable. 
So no well anywhere around. You got to get all the water and ice up there. Uh, and, and give us a reminder what mileage what mile is that? Is that your corner? Thirty eight. So you're but if it's been you've been having a long struggle in the snow and you're ready for for a break. I'm sure you know. You know it is a hot place for the runners. Dusty Corners is hot. It feels hot because it's in the sun. So they all, the main, they don't eat much, actually. And every aid station is, has its own different character because of where it is on the course. It's, it's really a big deal. We recognize that and we always try to make sure we take that into consideration because every place is different. Dusty Corners is hot and dry. They want water and ice. Hmm. And so it sounds like race day, once you're set up, you know, what uh, you're probably, it's, sorry, so you can relax, breathe a little bit. What time does the first runner come in on Saturday? And then what, when's the last runner coming through? Typically 10.30 a.m. for the first runner, plus or minus, of course. I think our record is just before 10.30, Jim Walmsley. And uh, cutoff time is uh, 4.10. Actually, now that got changed to 4.05. Ah. Uh, so that's it. And, you know, we don't cut very many runners at Dusty Corners. There, that's, I, ha, I have had years where I've cut nobody, and I've had years where I've cut two. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, we just don't have carnage, as you might see in some other aid stations. Interesting. Uh, so they reduce it by five minutes? because of Yeah, there was a, little, a slight change. And, you know, every year it's, uh, it can be a little bit different. It, the biggest variable is the high country trails can be affected by snow and other weather issues. So every time they have to reroute, you know, they got to take time into consideration. We were at 410 for a long time. And then uh, 2019, it was 405. And I think they're still on that course. I'm pretty wow. sure. So, you know, it's four o'clock and, and we can get out of there, you know, in about an hour and a half. It takes us two hours to set it up. It takes us more like an hour and a half to take it down. And when you ask me the question about that, I'll give you my funny thoughts on that. Uh, okay. So uh, you, we'll get into the post race here, but I guess we can jump into that. I was curious about, so you you stay Friday night? Obviously. No, I don't. Some, don't? People, do. Some people do. A lot of people do. I live in Auburn. I don't need to do that. I can get there in an hour and a half and I sleep in my own bed. Thank you very much. After hour and a half, after 410, you guys are out of there by 5, 530, 540, huh? Yeah, I'm the last human being. My wife, Susan, and I are the last human beings out of there. Uh, we have to stay there until we're given clearance from uh, net control. Yeah. So actually, I shouldn't say that because net control is a radio guy, and he usually leaves like with me uh, or right behind me. Yeah. But I stay and I do a, a, a walk down to make sure there's no trash anywhere, and we make sure it's all nice and cleaned up. It's kind of a nice moment. Uh, you know, yeah. Susan and I can just sit there after everybody's gone. We've done a great day. You know, we really had a nice accomplishment. Uh, all the volunteers are happily running down towards to see runners because they rightfully want to go be involved in the race. So they usually go to Forest Hill from Dusty and can go see the finish. You can, the cool thing about working at Dusty is you can actually go see the winner finish at, at the high school. So that's kind of a, a neat deal. A lot of aid stations cannot do that. The early ones can't. What's that? One year I, I was at the warehouse unloading and I missed Walmsley. So if someone's faster than Walmsley, then I missed the finish. <laughs> yeah, but you had a special duty though. You had to go do something. No, no like 
the whole dusty crew that was you that always goes straight to the finish and then we just like relax for a couple hours before yep. the we all missed it we all heard the applause driving there <laughs> yeah we all missed Which it time was that i don't know i don't Where, remember yeah. actually i mean i could do the math and figure that out but yeah. i was at the warehouse and i heard the announcer i got there when the second place guy came through Fascinating. so i've always kind of been happy that all our volunteers have an opportunity to do that but we're the last one Mm-hmm. Uh, We're the last station who can do that. Uh, yeah, because every other station, you figure their duration, their service period yes. is getting longer and longer. And so the cutoff, you're just not going to make it. Yeah, I actually also consider myself the last aid station that can, uh, well, last chance still. They, last chance has one crew. So they have an even longer durations. Uh, they, uh, you know, there's one one crew. There's no shifts at last chance. Uh, I don't do shifts because it's ten hours. I could and I might in the future. I don't know. I, it's always up to me if I wanted to do that. But I generally don't. I want to have one crew uh, do that. But after us, you know, that's too long for one crew. You start to need shifts. You know, much farther downstream than that. Yeah. Let's get into the equipment, you know, just kind of go through the list of, you know, what, what's, what do you got? How many tables and tents and stoves and, and, uh, and where do you store it? And where do you store it? And I've been to your house once. I know you got a bunch of tough sheds. Uh, one, I have one tough shed and it all fits. It all fits. So what, what do you, fits. yeah, let's go down the list of what you, what you have and kind of what it takes. 12 tables. Uh, 10 pop-up tents. 10 pop-up tents. That's a lot. Yeah, and I always ask people to bring more. You can't have too many tents. I ask my volunteers to bring them if they've got them. That's like a wedding. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, think about it. We build a city out there. We, we really do. We build a city out there, and we can, again, we set it up in about two hours and take it down in an hour and a half. And uh, so everything is kind of driven by the number of tables and tents. 12 tables approximately 10 tents. I have to change out tents every year because they break. Uh, tents are a nightmare. Tables last forever. Tents uh, don't have a long life. But, you know, I've got, you know, I have four big ice chests and several smaller, what I call medium-sized ice chests. I tend to borrow gear from other people, but I've got uh, a bunch of bins that are labeled with all the kitchenware. I've got three bins for kitchenware. And they're those giant sized Tupperware bins where you know, they've got all the, 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 the utensils. I mean, our kitchen is five tables long. Wow. And, and in six tents-ish, you know, in that kind of, you know, so it's probably four tents, four tents, five tables. Uh, it's a lot of gear. There are two uh, big water coolers. Uh, I actually always have three there. We usually only need to use two at a time a water one and a electrolyte one, six pitchers, uh, a bunch of uh, nice kind of serving trays. So we don't, I don't like using paper plates and tin plates and stuff. Like to use something that's plastic Tupperware. Uh, four uh, cutting boards, a whole you know tray of utensils and knives, which I sharpen to make sure they work when we get out there. There's a ton of medical type stuff that I bring up my own. I have my, I am, since we're not a medical aid station, 
I consider myself the chief medical officer and I do pretty much all of the wound treatment myself. I got good Navy uh, first aid and uh, up through, uh, what do you do with a sucking chest wound as we used to call it? Uh, but how do you try to make someone living on a battlefield? I can do a lot of stuff actually. Uh, but I also always look into my volunteers for, you know, do I have an RN in there? Uh, if I do, I want to be able to use them to help me out. So I got a lot of little medical supplies. There's a lot of stuff like uh, bug spray, uh, hand sanitizer, just a ton of things like that. duct tape, man, I'm coming up with, with tools. God, I've got a, two bins worth of tools. And, you know, I have a list that is two pages long of all the stuff we need. And I checked that list off the week before I pull everything out of the tough shed, clean it, inventory it, get it all ready to go. And since it's summertime, I can generally leave it on my, my deck. I've got a basketball court uh, out in, you know, not a wood floor, but a, uh, it's a half court size and I can drive cars on too. And I lay it all out kind of like uh, you would expect at aid station pickup there at the warehouse. And so I, it's my own little warehouse. I would have picked up all the, the stuff from them two weeks before, which I can do in my one vehicle. It's, it's tight, but I can pick up everything from Western States in my one vehicle. And then, you know, there's a lot more gear. So again, it's like five to six pickup trucks. Hmm. What do you think? The, obviously, it's, you've done, you do the same thing every year, but this year a little different because of COVID. So you're probably having to rethink how you're going to serve food and how yep. food will be, will be presented and wrapped, yeah. covered. I don't think it'll be difficult. I think we're going to need different kinds of food. It would be my expectation. You know, there's a lot of variable, uh, you know, again, to be quite honest, the race hasn't even been able to officially make a, a decision on the race. I think they will. But um, I expect it's going to be much more touchless. I can't this year imagine people sticking their hands into a bowl of fruit. I'm just not seeing it. So we're probably going to have to have something akin to individually wrapped or something that's easy to hand out. Um, we've been working, I'm on a, a group that's been working this in the background. So there are five of us that have been working, three aid station captains, Lon and Bill. Mm. And, you know, we're kind of working out what would we do? And we know we can pull this off. It's just going to be a little bit different. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, we're just waiting to get the orders on, you know, what we can do. And so it'll be much more. Uh, I think we actually here's where I, th I think we're going to learn some stuff that's going to be very valuable that we will not stop doing in the future. I think yeah. this is good. I remember the year when somebody called us on, hey, you guys are not wearing gloves. It was a, it was a crew member. Got mad at us for not wearing gloves. Fortunately, out of my uh, medical kit, I had some neoprene gloves and I made our kitchen workers put on gloves right then and there. And I went back and reported it to management and we have been having to wear gloves ever since that day. Huh. Yeah, that's, uh, I think with a lot of COVID things, a lot of us will do always do things differently in our lives, whether it's work lives or family lives, where we work, how we work, it'll all be different moving forward. So, I, you know, I've been to a couple of races I went to Javelina last fall and they had done things differently. There was pre-wrapped stuff and individually wrapped and, you know, and uh, it was different, you know, but it was fine. I mean, uh, I, I often carry what I need 
on me. So I, I usually will pick up some stuff, but it's not my majority of my calories are not coming from aid stations anyways. Cause I, I just like to have my stuff with me. So, but I do like a good grilled cheese. There you uh, go. I, I do. I grilled cheese and quesadillas that I don't know if I can live without. <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you think about it, you think about the days when Gordy Ainsley did this, uh, despite the fact that some people will remind us that it's, I think he only did about 89 miles. <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, that was completely unsupported, completely unsupported. And we've changed a lot. The, the, yeah. the texture of the race has changed a great deal. So, you know, now we have a lot more nice stuff and, uh, you know, it's a good thing. But, you know, we have, I expect there's probably going to be a, a tiny bit of back to the future involved in terms of how much, you know, stuff we have. But again, I think we can, we can still have a heck of a lot. Yeah. So what, what is on the menu for what's on the menu? What's hot? Do you guys, are you making hot food there? Or are you guys saying you no. say you're not, you're not a food. People don't really. We don't, we have tried hot food there. Nobody likes it. It's, it, it, it's temperature hot. Yeah. So we generally will have soup. I have soup there in case we need it. And I have a stove, one, two burner Coleman stove. And it's, we use it for coffee in the morning. <laughs> Almost nobody wants anything hot at Dusty Corners because people get there between 1030 in the morning and four in the afternoon. It's hot as hell. So, you know, that, that isn't an issue. We have to have a lot of ice and we have a lot of cool, fresh fruit. So we can actually keep the fruit in uh, uh, ice chest and not have it all nice and warm. Fruit is the number one consumed non-packaged item. The number one consumed item are goo. You know, whatever, I'm using the word goo and I shouldn't. Uh, gels, okay? Uh, gels, people love gels. That was never a thing before. But in the last 10 years, you know, gels, we used to, you know, eat, go through tons of uh, bananas and potatoes and fruit. I've had years where we might only use two bananas and maybe, you know, a small handful of potatoes. It's really changed with the packaged type gel type foods. And uh, maybe not as much downstream. I think downstream, they're still using a lot of hot food, a lot of soup. Uh, I remember I ran it and had pizza uh, down there, you know, close to the river. I wanted to have pizza. My wife, Susan, was pacing me. She wouldn't let me eat it. She thought I was going to get sick. I thought, what? <laughs> she wouldn't let me eat the dang pizza. But they have it. I think it's probably just fine. I think I have, uh, it sounds like fruit is the most challenging thing this year because of COVID. That's going to be a challenge. How you present it, cut it, yeah. how it's laid out, how does it stay cold? You'll figure it out. I'm sure it'll be something. Totally not worried about that. Yeah. I actually don't see that. I mean, it's nice to have a little challenge like that. We'll package some things up. The thing we actually worry about the most is the potential for more waste. Mm -hmm. We don't like that. We're trying to get as green as possible. Yeah, but I think it's going to be unavoidable this year to some extent, just because we have to become, you know, a bit more. We're going to, have to be a lot more touchless, I think. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could drop things into somebody else's bag. Like yeah, yeah that's what I'm actually thinking. A bit, you know, H station volunteers with tongs can yeah. drop it into somebody else. That's one. There's a bunch of ideas. There's a bunch of great ideas. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to see what they what happens and uh, see how it works out. Uh, 
Jimmy, We're gonna, you, I know we'll, if Lon has his way, and uh, he usually does, Lon is great. Man, that guy is great. He will probably be able to get us some packaged things, you know, that you can just hand directly to the runner, you know, where they can pick them up out of like a, a bowl and such. I think we'll have some of that. So it'll probably be a mixture. Uh, I, I'm really thinking a lot about how we're going to distribute water. And I've got some ideas of how to do water. And that, that frankly, I'll probably want to keep doing forever. Yeah. You know, good changes. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. We'll have to wait and see. Well, a couple more months, you know. Yep. Uh, so before we get into the, the end of the show here, we're going to talk about some shutdown procedures. But what's fun there? You guys have a theme. Or you guys got music. Uh, what's, what's, I know you're, I've been to some of your places and it's a lot, it's a lot of fun when you're around one of your events. That's the whole game. You want to make sure everybody is having a blast. So we have a theme where, uh, miners, you know, like the, who were the first people on the Western States trail miners. That, yeah. Those are the people who made the Western States trail It's actually part of the pony express trail. So I guess there were some pony express bubbas before them, but the Western States Trail is the shortcut between the Comstock and the Motherlode. Hmm. And so it has a lot more, uh, you know, the Donner Passway is a lot easier. You have a lot more valleys, uh, canyons to go through on the Western States Trail. So that's that. That's good. Uh, I remember I was I was telling earlier before the show that I, I volunteered at another race. I know you, you also are an aid station captain for other races, the... Uh, Auburn, which one is the uh, the endurance race? Auburn. Oh, the Overlook. 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 Yeah. So you you run the one of the, the river crossing there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I did the river crossing, and I still do, and I will still continue to do that one. But we'd have a theme there that's kind of silly tutus, and I think the big thing is, is that we have a kind of a an ethic as the the volunteers try to make sure everybody's having fun. Uh, you know, I assign a group of people to take care of crew and help them. called crew liaison. Wow. We have music. We, we do silly things. Uh, you know, I have a bunch of crazy music. Uh, since I'm military, of course, I make everybody you know, stand at attention. We do the uh, Star Spangled Banner. Nice. Uh, I, you know, we have crew meeting in the morning at, uh, not crew, but uh, volunteer meeting in the morning at nine o'clock where I stand up and present to them like I'm presenting to, uh, you know, my, my team. And we just have a really good time. We try to make it as, uh, as fun as possible because that gets everybody into the same place in their brain. And I think that's just really probably the most important thing I do is making it fun like that. So people dress up. Typically, I've got a sheriff's hat with a sheriff's badge and I act like a sheriff. And I don't care if anybody doesn't like it. <laughs> Somebody's got to be in charge down there and that's me. I Everybody have, uh, loves it. Everybody loves it. <laughs> I'll have to bring a, I have my own miners outfit and I used to do like, I'm also a banjo player. So I used to do banjo mining. Oh, things, you know, back God, in the so I, I'll have to come out this year with the banjo. And I have a bugle. I don't know how to play it, but I'll go ahead and make a heck of a lot of noise. Yeah. Before we have to show up, you know, the, the race is over hour and a half. You, you just packed it up and you hightailed it out of your home before dark. How long does it take to get everything back in the shed and close the doors? Well, that actually, the, the funny story, I need to start while we're still there. My wife and I laugh about this every year. When we put that thing together in the morning, it's an extremely orderly process. When it gets torn down, we have tried so hard to get people to be orderly, but everybody wants to go. 
So it just all gets thrown into whatever truck and you get out of there. And then you get it home and it gets dumped on my paved parking lot kind of thing. And it takes me two to three days to clean that up because I got to clean everything. I mean, Dusty Corners earns its name. It is extremely dusty. And so everything is just packed with dust. And I bring home, uh, I make a stuff like all the, the garbage has got to go, but the garbage goes to a, a garbage place. But I save all the vegetable matter to go in my compost. So you can imagine what that looks like. And I get there, it's all sitting out in the sun. Cleaning up all the ice chests inside and out, all the water jugs inside and out. It takes me two to three days. Uh, and it sounds like since when you start the next year, you go through and clean it up, you may find a cooler here and there, probably not knowing you, but if there was by chance something that was missed the cleanup phase, it would get caught the next year, I guess. Yeah, it would. And that's why we bring it out a week in advance uh, and, and make sure it's all clean. I've never found that problem. Uh, and I hope I don't. I'd be pretty pissed at myself if I did. <laughs> no, this has been great. Uh, this has been a great talk. And I really appreciate you coming on tonight to talk about this because this is it's all the gear that a successful runner like we talked about it's not just your shoes and your shorts and your what your high poles. it's about the support the people and all the aspects that go you know when you run 100 miles you have to train for you know six months and be ready but the day the success of the days comes down to the you come into an aid station and it's hot and people are, are welcoming and greeting it's organized and you have, you know, that's the, that's what makes, when you leave there, you got, you know, an hour, two hours, the next five, you're, you're happy because you had that excitement and the people. And that's what really drives yeah. is a success, is a successful, fun group of people, I think. It is. I completely agree. And I think that, you know, people who go to work at these aid stations and get to interact with the runners and get to be involved in such an event like that, or, you know, come away very, very happy. It's a great experience. Yeah. Huh. Well, good deal. Well, thank you again, Doug. And everybody, thanks for tuning in to the first 99 Gear Review. We just gonna, we'll get it posted on Friday, and then it'll be a fun one. Thanks again, Doug, and we'll, we'll see everybody on the trails. Very welcome. Thank you.